challenge. I just want to take a little time and have a conversation around the topic of relational joy. And um, I'm really excited about this because um, pleasure is a big thing to God. And, uh, you know, the early founders, you know, the early forefathers, you know, the script of the Westminster Catechism said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever or by enjoying Him forever. And so joy and pleasure are very high value to the Lord. And we've talked about your mind is a pleasure center. It's really built for pleasure and joy. And so there's, if there's a lack of joy in your life, which I think that's pretty common to the human race, or if there's not the extraordinary level of joy that you're longing for, it would behoove us to understand how joy works, how to get more of it, and where it comes from. So um, I want to define joy real quick, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm, I'm, uh, here's, here's a definition of joy. Joy is the experience your brain feels when it realizes someone is glad to be with you. How do you like that? Can I read that again? Joy is the experience your brain feels when it realizes someone is glad to be with you. They, they, you're experiencing someone else's delight in you. And it's unconditional. Joy can happen during happy times. And it can happen during sad times. The word happy comes from the, the old, you know, kind of Latin sexton happenstance. Meaning, um, it's, a, it's an emotion that comes from the circumstances that you're in. But joy is deeper than happy. Because a lot of times our circumstances stink. They're not good. Life has got throw, always throwing things at us. Death. Disappointment. Setbacks. So happenstances cannot be the basis of our joy. Our joy has to come from something deeper than circumstances. Yes? But it's not wrong to be happy. I mean, a good, pleasurable feeling when the circumstances are right. But joy is more deep and profound. So joy can happen during happy times. But you can have joy during sad times. Mad times and fearful times. We've all seen the pictures of joy. With huge smiles all around of people being glad to be together. Living the perfect lives. Okay, this generation is full of selfies that are taken just to make sure everyone sees our most joyful moments in life. And I think that's kind of the, what keeps Facebook going. But then there's the rest of us that felt twinges of envy and thought, you know, that could never be me. My relationships just don't look like that. I'm lonely, I'm isolated, and I'm not happy. I'm not full of joy. When we, we then conjure up our own memories and images of the many problems in our life, the arguments with loved ones, frustrations with bosses and co-workers, and times we've lost our temper and yelled at our kids. The thing is, we're right in realizing that these are not joyful moments, but we're missing out on realizing 
that with a little effort, these exact moments can lead us to joy, even if they're not appropriate for selfies at the time. So, I want to connect joy with relationships. Because brain science, psychologists, sociologists, neurologists, theologians are now converging in their disciplines and it's called an integrated technology or an integrated theology or philosophy on what produces maximum joy. And they're all concluding simultaneously it's directly tied to relationships. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because it's all over the Bible. I'm going to read you a passage out of Psalm 16. If you haven't read this, it's a great verse. Psalm 16, verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. You will find, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. How many of you guys like the term eternal pleasures? Is that such a great term? I mean, eternal pleasures. And so here's the writer saying there's a direct correspondence with the presence or the closeness or intimacy with Jesus and the degree of my joy. In other words, joy comes from closeness with God. Relational intimacy unleashes a profound joy and your mind, your brain, your body, your psychology was built for joy, maximum joy. Your brain is a pleasure center. But all of that joy won't be triggered unless relationships are right or dealt with. You guys got that part? So how many of you think relationships and joy are interconnected? You cannot have joy, true joy, outside of relationships. Very big point to understand. Okay, I'm going to give you another another verse, and there's tons of them, but now that was a vertical relationship. I want to hear, listen to how Paul talks about horizontal relationships in Philippians. The church was going through two things in the Philippian church. It was going through persecution. People were actually getting killed for their faith, and it was going through schism. It's going through division. And so Paul, the apostle, writes this letter to the Philippians to confront and, or excuse me, to comfort them in the fear they were having about getting killed and martyred and to encourage unity. And the unity part is a huge piece in the book of Philippians or the letter of Philippians. And um, so Paul goes like this. He goes, I'm in Philippians 1, verse 3. Philippians 1, verse 3, he goes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. What a statement. I always pray with joy because of your partnership. My joy comes because of the oneness, the partnership we enjoy together. So I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out 
on the, uh, uh, to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I want you to uh, move over then to, to chapter 2 of Philippians. So it goes on to say, if you have any encouragement from... Oh, did you catch the part where he says, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus? I'm sorry. I, gotta, that, I can't miss that. Paul goes this, I will pray for you and your partnership. And then... Um, yeah, and then he goes, God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So now Paul's saying, my unit, joy comes from unity, and I'm emitting affection out of my spirit toward you guys. You tracking with me? So this is huge. That's a supernatural reality. So then in chapter 2 he goes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. In other words, my joy is incomplete. It's diminished because you're in broken relationship. So have the same love. Being uh, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Alright? So, here are a couple of verses that tie quality relationships equal increased joy. Now, in, the, in our lives as human beings, we're in a very dangerous world. It's a mean-spirited and fallen world. And so every single person, almost every person I've ever met, has suffered from two types of traumas. And these traumas paralyze our ability to come into unity relationally with God and people. Trauma A is love that was supposed to have been given to us but wasn't. It's the, it's, the, it's the starvation trauma. If you keep food from a child, you are traumatizing their life by malnourishment. And malnourishment is traumatizing. How many of you would understand that? So we know psychologically that children literally die if they're, if they're not cuddled and loved. It's called a failure to thrive. And it, it was proven, you know, in Russia and other hospitals where children and orphanages, where they were just left to lay in beds without being hugged and stimulated, they thought that if they simply got milk to them and changed their diapers, they'd be okay. And these babies died from lack of emotional contact and physical affection. So we know that developmentally, even in our brains, our brains will not mature or grow outside of the stimulation that comes from relationships. Are you tracking with me? Brain development, psychological development, personality development, relational intelligence, all the things you need to live well, 
They are all, they're all triggered by how well you were loved. So if you weren't loved well, if you had aloof parents, workaholic parents, you know, you had abandoned parents, whatever, whatever kind of parental background or family background you had, whatever kind of relationships you had, if, you, if there was a lack of any kind in your life, if your parents weren't well emotionally, if they were, you know, if they were wounded, you know, a lot of times people have parents who were themselves adopted or they weren't well, and so they then become to transfer that lack of nurture onto you. So trauma A is what? Omission. Omission. Trauma B is when you were treated improperly or wrongfully in a way that hurt your heart and your mind and your body. Trauma B is mistreatment. Now, many of us have had both. We've had serious abandonment or omission, but we've also been physically violated. So... One of the worst violations that could ever happen to a child, developmentally, it, it could happen to anyone, whether they're adult or a child, but especially a child, is if they're sexually molested. Sexual mol- because our sexuality is very deeply tied to our identity and our, and our wholeness and our spirituality. Because the same muscles that we use for worship are the same muscles we use for love. Intimacy, affection, those kind of things. Intimacy and affection are huge muscles in our, in our brain that trigger worship and they also trigger relationships. So when someone's molested, violated physically, there is a massive distortion in them of being a thing. And they, start, and they shut down and they, at that moment of trauma, they cannot progress forward in their development because where you get traumatized, it arrests your development. You're so traumatized that you cycle in the pain of that invasion. Are you guys tracking with me? Now, I would like a moment of transparency, just a minute. I'd like everybody to answer this, including Sarah. <laughs> How many of you have ever experienced type A trauma? where you felt like at some way in the way you were raised, there wasn't, and don't be afraid if your parents are in the room, <laughs> but there was some degree of omission. Yeah, Duff looks a lot and goes, who would that be? <laughs> Duff, that means you. That's the only one I could be talking about. <laughs> That's, it was a joke. No, please don't be traumatized, because my son could say that. There were times when I worked too much. There were times when I was emotionally distant because I was preoccupied with surviving. So my son and daughter could easily say, we experienced some measure of trauma A. That doesn't mean it was a high level. You know, there's degrees of trauma, right? There's low-grade trauma and there's high-grade trauma. So I could say easily, in my life, I experienced uh, type A trauma. How many of you could say that as well? Raise your hand. All right, I would say that's about 100%. Okay, good. Well, Janet, yeah, she's... No, no, honestly, Janet had an extra... Janet had an extraordinary upbringing, and thank God I married her. 
Somebody, 99.9 of the people in this room for the tape raised their hand other than Janet who, lived, who was raised in a bubble. Okay, amen. Now, yeah, well, Sarah didn't raise her hand either. That's true. Sarah would be the only other one in this room. So Sarah, you... Yeah, that's your humility. But Sarah, you really were raised well. I mean, just... Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> the, the theory is still out. Yeah, the jury's still out on this. I've got a few more years to track record to see. All right. How many of you can say you've experienced trauma B, mistreatment? Okay, yeah, mistreatment. Uh, physical spanking in anger would be low-grade trauma. Well, you had your knuckles spacked once. Never mind. Oh, that was oh, that was Alyssa, <laughs> and you were doing it. No, you were. Oh, <laughs> no, it wasn't me. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's oh, that was my hand. Yeah, that's true. I did. Um, so many of us have experienced that. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you experience sexual trauma, molestation, because that's very private information. But I just want you to know that that particular one. Or, let's put it this way, if you were raised by anyone that was on drugs and alcohol, that is like being raised by a mentally ill person. You never know what's coming at you. You, you have no predictability. It's, it's being raised by insanity. You, you have moments of sanity, and then all of a sudden, your world crashes into insanity. Any form of being around alcohol or drug abuse is high-level trauma. So, people that have been abused emotionally or abused physically or sexually or by being raised by someone with alcohol or drug issues, typically, people that have been abused end up abusing. Not because they want to, but because those patterns have been bonded into their brain, into their soul. And so, it's going to take a whole lot of deliberate effort and healing to break those patterns of mental, emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual abuse. It takes, a, it takes time to break those patterns. And the only way you can break these patterns is with relationships. Now this is where it gets complicated. Because if it was relationships or the lack thereof that messed you up, the last thing we want to do is go and get more relationships. How many, does that make sense to everyone? Right. So that's why people um, are self-protecting and build walls and avoid intimacy because the very place where they were destroyed is the last thing they want to do is go into the place so they can need help. So this means... If you put a couple of things together, that the number one thing the world needs is therapeutic, positive, life-giving relationships. We need to be in a grace-based culture where love and relationships are done well. And this means somebody has got to form Groups that, that emit unconditional positive regard 
and know how to do this well and bring people on the journey out of woundedness and into wholeness so that they can live with maximum joy. All right, so I would like to um, refer you to this book that I've been reading. And uh, you guys know I tend to read a little bit, right? I don't know. I don't know how I do it, but it's it's a gift from the Lord. I'm. I have a. I have a passion for the kingdom. And underneath the umbrella of Jesus Christ, I have a passion for Jesus and the kingdom because I believe it is the most significant answer to the human race. And underneath the kingdom are three kingdom realities that we must contend for. Reality number one is revival, which is a high-level intimacy with the indwelling Christ. Revival is in His presence manifested, which is what I just read about in Psalm 16. The reforming or the restoring of the church is recovering spiritual family, healthy spiritual family, to subsidize and maybe for the first time offer that relational loving that people never had. So the first one, revival, is is vertical. The second one is horizontal. And it's a high-quality, covenantal way of life that is, is being practiced and walked out by people that understand and apply the gospel of grace. We cannot be a therapeutic community of love unless we understand grace. Grace is a disposition where we, we look at people the way God looks at us. It says, God is gracious. May God be gracious to you. May the grace of God be poured out to you directly and indirectly through people. So grace is how we relate to only the true self and not the false self. Grace is how we delight in people and view them the way God views them. So a spiritual family that can emit unconditional delight triggers dopamine and serotonins and all the other feel-good hormones that are wrapped up in your body. It, it unlocks the right side of your brain. It ignites an explosion of joy in your heart whenever you know you're around people that you're totally safe with. That will hear your story, that will hear your issues, that will love you, that will not define you by your false self, by your life conditions, by your performance, by your mistakes, by your humanity, by your past, present, or future. All they will do is love you exactly as you are, and they will love you forward into who you're called to be. Now, admittedly, that's not a strong reality in most churches. It's more uh, uh, based on program, information, meetings. And the church has not been effective in being um, a contagiously joyful place based upon the, the lack of relationships. We aim to remedy that by the grace of God. So we're early adopters in the paradigm of the church's family that doesn't mean we're great at this. Not a person that's come into this initial church plant had their act together. 
Not one of us. And so now we have to take a bunch of traumatized people who are orphaned, trauma A and trauma B, who have very low-grade relational skills and emotional intelligence. And we have to walk a journey together of inner healing and deliverance and getting gospeled to the point where we've got a legitimate core group that can provide a fighting chance for other people to make it. So who's got the guts to sign up for this? Because you're going to have to look straight into all of your hurt and pain and do it with a group of people that can unhook you from all the yesterday's damage and bring you into, into the present tense joy of the Lord and your tomorrow's destiny. Now the, now the good news is we are going to be that people. We are that people by faith and we're going to be that people. I am not letting up. The Basujas are not going to let up. And I trust you're not going to let up until we get a breakthrough. So I really don't care about how many we get here. I just care about the gutsy people that are willing to, to, to fight into the Father's heart and fight into one another. And I'm very aware that it takes a long time for trust to be built and for this to, to happen. We know statistically it takes about seven years before your average person even begins to consider trusting someone else meaningfully. Seven years. However, here's what I'm banking on. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm banking big time on the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm banking big on God to come and, and begin to break through the cracks and the chasms of our heart and break through and, and explode little bits of light. And I'm, I'm breaking, banking big on the power of the gospel to accelerate this process so that the presence of God causes people to come in and like, oh my gosh, God's real. I better get on the page. And then when they touch the presence of the Lord, they begin to realize, i got to work on the horizontal piece as well. I can't, I can't just do this and not this. And when we start doing our homework, beloved, I, I think we're going to watch a snowballing geometric explosion. You know what? I don't think I know. I know it. I know it. I know one plus one does not equal two in, in the spirit. One can put a flat to flat, thousand to flight, but two ten thousand. And I'm confident that a handful of people, if they get it down and get at it, can learn to love really well and they will send a vibe of love out of their spirit. Now, we talk about this because you first have to teach and decree some, the words of something before you can begin to actualize them. Words have power. So the preaching and the teaching of the word begins to realign our mindset and open our heart to a new reality. But I am not dumb enough to think that words alone are going to make it for us. There's going to be practice and then practice and then more practice. And there's actually games we can play, practice that we can have, that um, unlock our love, you know, our love parts of our brain and our soul. One of those, and you're going to love this, is just having fun over food. 
having fun over food, casual, fun storytelling over food, has a way of, of reducing fear and increasing faith. Just that simple act. Playing games. Singing happy songs. Singing happy, silly songs has a way of, of melting the traumatized parts of our brain. So Mon and I were over at the Horrocks the other night, and there is uh, Annika and um, Adeline. My brain had a moment. She just had a third birthday. And we're there, and we end up singing the silliest, goofiest songs, and these girls, and then we're making up songs, and these little girls are squealing with delight. I mean, they're just roaring with laughter, and Mono's doing a song, then I do a song, and they do a song, and, you know, and, and so just this morning, Josh texts me, he goes, oh no, that was you. One of the songs we taught him was, there's a dead skunk in the middle of the road. A dead skunk in the middle of the road. And these girls start laughing. There's a dead skunk in the middle of the road. And then we grab their nose. Stick it to high heaven. All right. So, again, again. And, oh, I only know hundreds of songs like this. You know, and... Again, waddly atcha. So what happens? When we become like children, you see what happens? You can't get adult-like until you're a child-like. You can't enter the kingdom without being like a child. And it's like a child plays. And in the playing, it unleashes, it washes the brain with serotonins and dopamines. So when you're playing and goofing off and being silly and childlike, suddenly... The right side of your brain trips on, and when your right side trips on, your left side awakens more. If your right side is shut down and all sophisticated and engineer-like, your whole brain goes into a, a low-grade thinking, and th everybody thinks that's the smart, you know, being a Dr. Spock is the smart side. That's not. The smart side is not your left brain. It's your right brain, and your left brain is supposed to serve your right brain. And your right brain is your relational side. You're on the planet for relationships. Tell that to your mathematical friends. Sorry. <laughs> no, the thing that I love about you, Dan, is that you, are, you have stretched into and continue to stretch into the relational side of life. And I, I of many of the people in this church, I am most proud of you. Because your safe side, the side that you can, you know, that you can command, you have a very smart left brain engineer, all that good stuff, Stanford grad, you're, you're brilliant. Okay, we all know that. But you have said, I will fight into my right brain. I will fight into my artistic, playful self. I will fight against the way I was raised. I will fight and find my full self, not just part of myself. And do you know how scary that is? Because you can control math. You can control programming software. You can control this and that. But when you get into your right side, you don't have any control. You can't control relationships. You have to let go of control. And fear and control are partners. And they're blocking you from being your full self. 
So when people have been traumatized, one of the first things they default to is control and isolation. Fear and control are inseparable. And so if I want to be safe, I think I want to be safe, I'm going to isolate, all right? Or I'm going to be the rescuer. And I am going to go into a situation where they need me because I'm rescuing them. Because rescuing, when you're rescuing somebody, you still are in control. You're getting validated by rescuing. You're not the child who's vulnerable. You're the rescuer who everybody needs. So people that have been traumatized, like myself, slip into patterns of being rescuers. And they and they don't let the they don't know how to freely receive in order to freely give. They only know how to give. They don't know how to receive. They don't know how to ask for help. They don't know how to be vulnerable. It's been very recent in my life that I've learned to ask for help and be transparent and open and say, look, I'm not going to come off as the resident expert. I am a person also. I need loved also. And I'm not going to position myself outside of this equation. I'm going to come into a family. I'm going to try to build a family, but I want to be one of the kids in this family too. I don't just always want to be the father figure. I want to be a kid in this family and I want to be able to hurt and cry and get healed too. So, you know, there you go. I'm not going to play the I'm cool and you're not. And I have it and you don't. That's Because that's, that's not true. And if you think there's anybody out there who's got their poop together so much that they don't need other people like this, they have created a, an illegal persona that is absolutely an absolute lie. And I'm not going to play that. I've, I've unwittingly did play it. So I want to introduce you to this book and to this content. This book is called Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You. And it's, and it's research that's done by, the, by some top brain scientists, neurosurgeons, psychologists, psychiatrists, theologians. One of the most co uh, complimentary things that could ever come is from a guy that is my hero. His name is Dr. Dallas Willard. He's now with the Lord. He's, the, he's one of the top experts on spiritual formation. He wrote Spiritual Disciplines. He's like the top of the top. He's, he's the head of a, you know, he's PhD and PhD of all everything. And he's very, very Christ-centered guy. So Dallas Willard writes, The life model is the best model I have seen for bringing Christ to the center of counseling and restoring the disintegrating community fabric within Christian churches. Now, what this is, is a, is a collaborative effort with an organization behind it, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass it around in just a minute, a collaborative effort, and these guys went ahead and wrote probably one of the greatest breakthrough books on leadership out there today. It's called Rare Leadership, and I'm feeding it now to business people and pastors because basically it's saying to leaders, if you cannot create an atmosphere of affection and treat people relationally and more important than what they do and how they contribute, you're not a good leader. Leadership creates belonging. Safe belonging. That's the best leaders. 
They don't use people for what they can get out of them. They relate to them for their value just because they're people of God. So this is like breakthrough technology in, in the whole world of leadership. And it's going to be woven into our newly forming college. Now I am really asking you guys to become intelligent about love. Because truth exists for love. And I'm going to just read a couple more clips and then we're going to pray. As we have seen, the world is a fracturing place. And each of us is split to some degree by the evil in the world. How many of you can bear witness to that? There's a little brokenness in all of us. Or a lot of brokenness in all of us. Yet within each of us is the drive to withstand the world's assaults and to become the persons we were intended to be. God created us with minds that automatically seek to be whole and the quest for wholeness is wonderfully boosted by joy during early childhood. In a child's first two years, the desire to experience joy and loving relationships is the most powerful force in their life. Just ask Noah. In fact, some neurologists now say that the basic human need is to be the sparkle in someone's eye. That's your basic human need, to be the sparkle in someone else's eyes. That's why Mono and I are super deliberate about hugging you, kissing you, embarrassing you. Because it's not contrived, it's real and legitimate. We have been given the gift of delighting in others. And it's not just the people that join our churches. We have been given the gift of affection. as a demonstration. We have practiced this over and over again with total card-carrying pagans in the world and every single time it works. Delighting in people unconditionally, sending the, the, the vibe of Father's love to them without any strings attached is the highest anointing on the planet. There is no higher anointing. You can raise the dead, but if you can't love them after that stinker got raised, what, what's the point? They could still be cantankerous and wounded. So the highest anointing, the highest anointing corporately, the thing we're going to go after and go after and go after in prayer and practice is to get healed enough, get freed enough to relationally love one another and emit delight and affection. Now that is my definition of a real man and a real woman. And I aim to change Wyoming's definition of manhood in my lifetime. And I aim to change Colorado's definition of manhood in my lifetime. And I aim to change the definition of manhood worldwide in my lifetime. I am going, by the grace of God, to be one of those warriors that changed the story and changed the script and changed the narrative on why we're on the planet. Mm -hmm. Just in case you wondered about what my agenda is, that is it. That is what apostolic fathers do. 
They change the narrative of what's important in life. And in apostolic people, they change the story. They change the narrative. They're paradigm shifters. And I guarantee you, people will move here, as this couple has. They will move here, and they will go through the storming and the traumatizing and the struggle. They will move here to align with this purpose so that they can be equipped and loved back to wholeness. And whether they stay here or not, I don't really know. But here's the point. This core group gets to be so good at this that we're a catalyst. And what's a catalyst? It's an agent that can change the entire makeup of the base. It's so chemically powerful and potent that nobody stays the same when they're around you. So you want to be delighted in. Joy is relational. It is also a contagious experience. Joy is produced when someone is glad to see me, which stirs up a bit of joy in me. Then my joy is returned, and the giver's joy is increased as well. This experience goes back and forth at amazingly fast rates, six cycles per second in a nonverbal face-to-face exchange, all the time growing stronger joy between both people. This is so subliminal, subconscious, and mystical and experiential and spiritual. You know in a nanosecond whether you're delighted in or not. There is no fake in it. The right side of your brain is so sophisticated, so well formed, so evolved in the neurological you know, pathways, so sophisticated, you can pick up the energy of another person in split seconds. And if someone is a little bit, you know, stayed, a little bit reserved, a little bit cautious, a little bit guarded, a little bit reserved, you can pick it up. You can read their spirit now. Even the most emotionally unintelligent people, you have read them, you've read another person in, in a less than two to three seconds. You know. You know in your knower. And so everybody gets, has, a, has an outward cordialness. We all have masks. We all have ways to play. We all have ways to engage. But you can pick up when someone's a bit nervous, a little bit shut down, a little bit this, a little bit that. What do we want? Genuine delight. Not put on, not contrived. That means we all have to get delighted in. Because you can't give out delight unless you've been delighted in. So that is a chicken and egg problem. How do you assemble a room full of broken, traumatized, non-delighted people and over time get them to delight and feel the delight of God in each other to the point that it's contagious? Welcome to my world. Not just this, this little church plant. An entire family of churches. A translocal family. Do you understand that this delight has to involve other cultures and nations? Because inside of you is a need for interaction with black people, Hispanic people, Asian people. That 
What's that? French people. French people even. And, listen to this, it's got to be intergenerational. And it's got to be mixed with people that are traumatized more than you. You've got to be around people more traumatized, more culturally wounded than you, or it won't work. So in other words, for the equation to take place, we've got to have little kids, people of different colors, and ethnic groups and backgrounds for it to work. Wow, it's pretty heavy. This is the invitation that we're, we're being called to. And I'm so excited because it's going to happen. It is happening. But slowly. Painfully. So this book is a book with exercises and training and study, but it's got playful games in it and, and uh, things to learn and grow in. And it's... It's ways that we can apply these things in therapeutic groups, which is microchurches. So when we go to do our microchurch conference workshop, I'm going to have a lot of games, and we're going, to, we're going to work to create a culture of affection and delight. In other words, we're going to go to the core of the reason for these things, not just the programmatic side of it. Any questions? Relationships. Joy is relational. How many of you believe that? Good. Well, then we had a breakthrough. How many of you feel like you'd like to grow in this issue of delight? The capacity to light and send the vibe off your spirit. You're loved and you're liked apart from your behavior. The greatest leaders, the most influential people, send that vibe. How's that for a challenge? And it's within striking distance of every one of us. But we're going to need healing. So that's why we are into inner healing. Any questions on this?